Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Markets Podcast. I'm your host, Krishan Kubchand, and my guest today is my good friend, Alpha Barry, the founder of a new city building firm in Africa called Temple. Um, Alpha and I go way back, and I'm super tempted to kind of share uh, the story of how we got to know each other. With that being said, I think it's better to hear from himself. So Alpha, would you like to share a bit of a backstory on mm. kind of who you are and how you got here, sir? Thanks for having me, Chris. So yeah, the the way you and I met, I believe it was uh, 2021, summer of 2021, I released this uh, extremely schizophrenic uh, essay series called uh, The Blueprint for the African Century. And the idea behind The Blueprint, what it was is essentially an essay series about how to, and a bit of a manifesto and plan for full spectrum industrialization of Africa, and broadly speaking, uh, the regenesis of a kind of African civilizational prosperity. That's pretty much it. Um, so you may ask why was that why that was needed, and um, why even bother to do this thing in the first place? Well, the reason why I, I wrote the, the 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 essay series was because Africa's brand in the world for at least the last five hundred years has been uh, weakness, uh, irrelevance, but mostly poverty. And um, and since the last five hundred, the last fifty years or so after the post uh, the post colonial period, it's been the most dominant strategies and narrative for solving the prosperity problem on the continent have just been about development, which is essentially basic Western universalism, civil society, neoliberal policies packaged into poverty alleviation, although crucially never wealth creation, which is the main thing. And the other narrative has been basically let's call it the grievance narrative, where you have African leaders, businessmen, people coming in and essentially yelling at the West or the rich world to say, look, we need more help. You need to do more because you were responsible for colonialism, slavery, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I saw these two narratives proliferate and dominate, and it was extremely hard to just talk about anything else in terms of like, okay, we understand these things exist, but can we actually agree that what we need right now is a, is a strategy, right? An actual working strategy. And can we actually get together and say, this is not about alleviating poverty. It's actually about wealth creation. It's about power accumulation. It's about capacity development. And, and I thought that voice and crucially the arguments to support it didn't exist at the time. And I was like, you know, I was young enough and crazy enough to believe I had the beginnings of the answer. So I started to wrote, to write that, uh, essay series and you know you got some pretty good circulation uh, between our networks so that's how we met and that's how we uh furthered our relationship yeah i i remember after reading it i shared it with um jude moore the ex-public works minister for liberia and um mm -hmm. he was one of several people who i kind of shared it with but he was very much at all with what can be defined as a highly differentiated first principles full stack worldview um yeah with regards to not just where future developments ought to go, but also a diagnosis of where developments had gone wrong in the past. And Precisely. also um, an understanding of pragmatically what do private actors in collaboration perhaps with the state kind of do to shape the institutions that can make a lot of these, you know, imperatives investable. And so 
yeah. one example therein being, if you look at the kind of wealth creation that's happened um, across the kind of Asian tigers in the last 30 years, it's been a shocking amount. And that required not, you know, foreign aid. It required um, a understanding Precisely. of the ancillary institutions that enable that. Um, one statistic I'll kind of flag quickly for, for Alpha that I think you'll find interesting is if you look at the kind of total amount of foreign aid that goes to kind of the entire African continent um, on a yearly basis, it's about $50 billion. Um, if you look at the total capital flows that exit the African continent um, in terms of profits that are made there and that are sent elsewhere because people feel like their profits are better secured through investments, say US treasury bonds or say companies on the London Stock Exchange, it's $100 billion. Um, what's lacking hmm. there? Well, there's a, there's a lack of institutions for that reinvestment, right? And yeah. um, I think you've got a fantastic vision that kind of uh, puts that, m- makes the case for understanding how to create these catalytic reinvestments. And so with that in mind, my next question here is given uh, this blueprint, right? I'd love if you, could, if you could elaborate on what you think some of the kind of key tenants and key building blocks are for, you know, Alpha's blueprint right now, all kind of right. like the big picture, uh, uh, core components of that. Yeah. <clears throat> so at the foundation uh, of the worldview of the blueprint is this deep um, primacy and commitment to industrialization as the most important civilizational process to emerge in the last 200 years. It's it's honestly that, that significant. So industrialization is the most important thing humanity has done since perhaps the axial age, which was, you know, this universalizing um, mode of thought that appeared in Persia, India, China, and the Greco-Roman world about two, 3,000 years ago, all in parallel without any kind of like mixture between them. So that was, so yeah, you had the actual age and then you had maybe the Christian revolution and then the industrial revolution is literally the most important thing in the last 200 years. And to explain my conviction that industrialization is, is the whole game, basically, I'll, I'll offer like a minor edit of William Gibson's famous quote that like, you know, the future is here. It's just unevenly redistributed. Basically, the Industrial Revolution is still happening. It's just unevenly distributed. And Africa has been, is, is essentially the last frontier, maybe along with parts of South America and India and, and, and Asia, broadly speaking, where this is, the this, this thing needs to happen. And so for one thing, aside from China and a few others, you know, South Korea, Japan, the whole world is either in the process of rapid or premature deindustrialization or hasn't even begun the process. So we have no idea what our world looks like when um, when the entire planet has benefited from the kind of process created by industrial civilization. And so that's the first thing that that is um, the bedrock of the blueprint. It's just this deep commitment. When you talk about a blueprint, what's the blueprint for? Is for this deep commitment to a long-term project of industrializing sustainably the continent. Uh, the, the second piece is simply things that are endemic to, to Africa itself. So, you know, you've, you've heard this probably a lot, but the African demographic statistics are, are even though they, they might be used sometimes as a red herring, they are still significant. So as you know, something like 3 billion Africans will exist on the continent by 2050. Some project one in three by 2100, one in three humans will be African by 2100. Uh, that's obviously alarming because you know you have four billion young men and women 
who are essentially going to be living on a continent um, that is massive without any kind of connected infrastructure, any kind of sustainable urbanization, and fundamentally, again, to go back to industrialization, any kind of wealth creation engine to ensure that they have long-lasting, fulfilling, prosperous lives. So the demography thing is both a a curse and a, a benefit because it works if we can leverage it to do, to do something interesting with it. If we don't, we basically get you know, anchored down to like the bottom of the ocean with this massive weight. And um, so I'll stop there. I, the, these two things being the main building blocks, you have this commitment to industrialization as the why we're, we're, what, what we're focusing on. And then you have the demographic statistics and the urbanization that go along with it as the sort of like the exponential curves that um, can be leveraged to turn that industrialization into something pretty interesting. Interesting. I feel like over the last 20 years, we've seen a systematic underweighting of the importance of industrialization across um, the West and with regards to development uh, more broadly. Yeah. Um, the best example I can think of is I was watching this uh, video of like Naval Ravikant talking about the future of industry. And he says, you know, the future is not oil, it's not gas, it's not building. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's leveraged creators using software to get media distribution. Correct. And I felt like puking after watching that. <laughs> um, I, I, I think we've been tricked into this kind of availability bias where because what's around us in the value chain that's kind of capturing a lot of value is kind of software and media and yeah. we're like oh that's that's sexy that's cool that's capturing a lot of value and we're totally disembodied from the actual kind of like material infrastructure that was set up over the last 50 years that's kind of been offshored for example in the west or hasn't been fully built out in many regions um such that we have a very little awareness of kind of like the foundations of what prosperity tend to be um, precisely and, and and it's not it's not pretty it's not sexy but it's real and I think that's important to note. Um, well, I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, just to touch on that real quick because it's such an important point. I mean, have you you've you've read a Ha Jun Chang, right? The the Economist. Um, ha Jun Chang has this thing where he talks about this bit where he talks about basically um, this this scene in this movie with Orson Welles. Orson Welles goes into this whole spiel about how um, in five hundred years, basically Switzerland had brotherly love, democracy, etc. Um, but all they got out of it was a cuckoo clock. In 500 years, you know, Italy had the Renaissance and it was a violent time, but they produced all this great civilizational infrastructure. Uh, but but the reason why Hajun Chang brings this up is basically to point out how, you know, Orson Welles is so fucking wrong because Switzerland did not just produce the cuckoo clock in 500 years. They're actually one of the most industrialized countries in the world. If you look at their share of um, their share of GDP, that is due to um, industrialization. So, like, basically, actually, I think in a recent talk, he said that they're the most in terms of uh, percentage share of the economy. It's just they're a small country; they're about you know a few million people. But like in terms of percentage share of the economy, the Swiss economy is driven entirely by about two or three industrial firms. They just do, they just, they don't produce end user industrial products. They just basically produce things for other industrialized uh, firms. But like, so a lot of this stuff is hidden, but they're not just a country producing fucking chocolate and watches. They make real uh, things that in a material world are indispensable. And as a result, you know, they're very wealthy as a country. Just because it's unseen doesn't mean it's invaluable. So that's mm -hmm. that's the point I wanted to make. So 
related to that, um, one of the projects on my bucket list right now is, as we mentioned, a lot of where value is, is highly opaque. A lot of the production processes that you want to be able to remix, you want to be able to understand, be it how an aluminum smelter kind of worked, be it how the um, cargo ships for trains across Europe are kind of supplied, right? There's no tech crunch for that. That's glorifying who the entrepreneurs are that are behind that. There's no, um, there's very much a lack of kind of data in terms of where the different components of different things kind of come from. Oh, and as a result, you know, if you are an entrepreneurial type person, right? And what I mean by that is someone who has one, like the kind of demographic tailwinds where you have the free time to kind of like bet on entrepreneurial things. Second, you have, you know, a level of agency where you want to be trying those new things. And third, you have a set of talent and skills or maybe even access to capital, such as folks kind of who are kind of flowing in Silicon Valley to build yeah. tech startups, right? Yeah. When you fit into that kind of perfect demographic, you are also fitting into the demographic that is totally oblivious to a lot of those things. Right. And so one right. thing on kind of like my bucket list is one can imagine a set of kind of AR goggles, you know, like Google Glass, right? And the idea would be you look at any genre of product and mm. based on signals such as your geography, such as who the biggest sellers of this type of product are, based on kind of open, you know, ISO uh, standards and supply chain kind of data, et cetera, it can kind of query all of that and give you a probabilistic estimate of what are all the kind of components that are kind of coming here and then link you to the company that sells it and link you to the product that kind of is the sub-product, et cetera. And mm-hmm. the result is that can lead to kind of greater fluency as it relates to the material foundations of what's around us. Now, yeah. on top of that, I think an idea that's interesting here is, as you mentioned, what is the industrialization playbook, right? What is the way in which a nation itself and the way in which the combination of public actors like investment promotion authorities, industrial policy authorities, and also private investors and kind of entrepreneurs like yourself, how do you guys kind of collaborate to bring new components of industry that make sense on global market scale um, Mm -hmm. within a region? I think, you know, the tooling right now is very much lacking for that. It's like, I remember spending time with various investment promotion authorities, and I think it's very much an approach of can we attract this big company here by giving a lot of concessions, but there isn't very much of a proactive approach in terms of understanding what are the key value drivers that can mm. enable us to really find segments in the global market that we can really fit into that kind of strategic approach. Um, one thing I like very much from your uh, project is there is that kind of tech native um, philosophy to both understanding the types of tooling you can build within the city and more broadly, um, the way in which you can use, you can use tooling to interact with global markets. Um, I guess the follow-up question here is mm-hmm. we've spoken about the blueprint. We've spoken about a broad thesis of industrialization being the most important imperative. Can you guide us through how we move from that thesis to your current project, its origins and its current stage? Yeah. Great question. So well, so just to, a brief background on what we're working on right now. So as you mentioned at the top of the podcast, I'm the founder of this company called Temple. And Temple, what we want to do is build cities to make Africa more prosperous and beautiful. And why build cities at all? It's not obvious. And the reason why um, I mentioned earlier the demography statistics, but as well as the urbanization statistics in Africa, they're even more significant. So you have about, um, I believe in Nigeria alone, the urbanization rate for the biggest city, Lagos, is about 5.2%, which is extremely high if if you know what that means is essentially they're adding 15 million people or sorry, 5 million people every year or, wow. or thereabouts. Um, 
So urbanization based on economic theory drives prosperity. But if you look at, you know, more detailed papers as to what really causes that, uh, Africa is an aberration because it's urbanizing extremely quickly, but the prosperity is a laggard. And of course, we know why is because of our conversation thus far. It's because there is no real industrial project going on. And, and so um, why build cities? It's because it's actually a very, let's call it a full stack approach to just kickstarting the industrial process without having to, you know, having to affect some kind of central coordinating party and when the when the you know contest politically in a, in a specific country to start industrializing because if you look at the history of industrialization it's been pretty much the that's the playbook you have you have a a, a one party state that usually driven by a new elite that comes into power captures the state and then goes on to on this like process of very detailed five year plans to industrialize the country that happened in Meiji Japan that happened in Germany with Bismarck that happened even in the United States like people don't really think that um you know America had at some point that kind of a political monopoly but if you look at the Lincoln administration and what he did with his people in power with Clay and all these people as as his chief economist during the war Lincoln was essentially a king and monarch and he was able to drive uh, the country's industrialization much faster with investment in rail and all that stuff during the war. And so you need that kind of concentrated political capital. But short of that, one way to get it is by building cities from scratch because that allows you to effectively create the same the same political conditions at a smaller scale. So that's the logic behind that. Um, and in terms of the, the, the mechanics of, of what we're doing tactically to, to make this happen, Right now, for our flagship project, our flagship city is being built, uh, is being planned in, in Nigeria. Why Nigeria? Because it is the largest, um, fastest population uh, growing in Africa. It is the youngest um, in terms of median age, one of the youngest. And it also has um, the highest potential for growth just by virtue of already being one of the you know wealthiest countries in the, in the continent. And so... There's a lot of potential. There's a lot of human capital also. And, and we think that, you know, if you're able to just once again harness the, de the demographic advantages in the country, the, the rapid urbanization there with Lagos uh, being one of the, you know, largest cities in the world, not just in Africa. Um, and, you, and you're able to harness the, the urbanization process there and attach that, you know, a full stack, you know, urban industrial engine then very interesting things, things can happen in terms of producing new kinds of wealth and uh, being able to drive change across the continent, but first starting there in that country. Fantastic. Um, what are some of the ancillary institutions that the city will provide, which you think will accelerate innovation and accelerate yeah. um, the process of kind of creating valuable exports that kind of allow the city to accumulate its prosperity and wealth over time? Yeah. So the first thing I'll do here is, is first I'll talk about how uh, how we're thinking of designing the the economic engine of the city itself. So um, I can say this now because it's 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 pretty much official. We were able to secure VR partners on the ground, an eleven thousand acre, um, an exploration license for an eleven eleven thousand acre plot of land in in Nigeria, where we have a basically you know 
full rights to to mine gold in, in the area. Now, gold mining itself is a is, is going to be about a twenty five billion dollar industry by twenty twenty seven, which is which is great. But the idea is not to just you know use the the mining concession to just become a gold producer. What we want to do is leverage the the gold mining asset and as an anchor to create downstream industrial activities from the mine and you know do them in the city. So that's how we're, we're thinking about bootstrapping the, the economic engine. And, and the institutions that come with that are a few things. The first thing is um, an urban sovereign wealth fund. And so if you have mineral wealth, you're able to kickstart um, you know, a, a sovereign wealth fund for the city and leverage that as a tool to either acquire you know, tech by, by, by entering into joint ventures with foreign companies to, to execute tech transfer. Or you can basically um, invest in other African countries to get their uh, you know, mineral resources, obviously legally and fairly, uh, to kickstart much more ambitious you know, um, processing and refining industries in the city itself. So for instance, you can leverage the mineral wealth, the gold wealth from the sovereign wealth fund and acquire lithium, um, cobalt, etc., minerals necessary for the energy transition, and then with the JVs with foreign sophisticated partners, you can start uh, refining those those minerals and and in that way enter uh, as a wedge into the the electric vehicle battery supply chain. So uh, so that's one that's one example. The other thing would be a research university, right? So. Once you have the capacity to actually attract the best talent, not just in Nigeria, but in Africa and around the world, um, you're able to have the human capital and service that human capital in new in interesting ways. And so what we want to do is beyond the the mining industrial anchor is we want to be able to to go and ladder up into eventually producing knowledge because that is, you know, what actually produces technology and new technology is what drives future growth. And so um, the research university is how we're thinking of bridging that gap is, um, you know, training the best talent from Nigeria and the rest of the continent, fusing that with the best talent from across the world uh, that is amenable to come to come into Africa, and then through that mixture, that admixture, of course, based on you know more institutional design, uh, being able to create something interesting there, and then of course uh, there is a plan and a project, an ambition to eventually create domestic champions, industrial champions via the city in Nigeria itself. And, and again, the, the downstream activities from the mine are, are really powerful here because, you know, imagine uh, a heavy duty drone company that transports minerals across the African copper belt, right? That's something that uh, is not feasible today, but over five, 10 years can be feasible in the future. You can start by, you know, leasing the drones themselves from foreign companies, but eventually, because there's a demand drive, you can start to actually produce them in the city itself. And that enables you to, to go up into the much more interesting advanced manufacturing that will drive real wealth and growth um, in, in, in the world economy in, in the coming years. So, so just from that asset, you know, there's all these interesting things you can do. And that's what we're planning to do um, in the city itself. Fantastic. I'm wondering, as you look at other developments, um, specifically in frontier and emerging markets, but I guess one could kind of just maybe just narrow in on the kind of the African continent itself. Sure. Um, 
What do you think other developments have gotten wrong in the last couple of decades as it relates to their attempts, perhaps, at institution building? I think one thing that we can kind of surmise from this is, and I think you're totally right about this, is um, a lot of attempts have been somewhat piecemeal versus full stack in terms of uh, development initiatives. And so an example here being, um, if you are one of the major mining companies that acquires a junior mining company's kind of rights to mine, and you decide to kind of scale that up, very often in that playbook, you're not really thinking about the broader industrialization of the region around you. Yeah. You're not thinking about other kind of modes of investment and value capture because you have a very slim specific business model, which is regarding kind of mineral extraction, mineral processing, and mineral sales. Um, in contrast here, things are a bit more regionalized and there is this broader vision for blended investing in kind of like infrastructure that enables even more opportunities to emerge that can generate those returns, Precisely. generate that growth. Um, what, what, what do you think some other folks are kind of getting wrong or what are some other things that folks have gotten wrong in the last couple of decades? So the first thing to, to immediately answer here is just simply the fact that like a lot of foreign firms just don't have the the actual commitment to develop a lot of the regions they're operating in. You know, if, if you're a big mining company, uh, you know, like one of the British or, or, or German ones, like you're just here to extract, refine in your own home country and, and capture most of the value that comes from the downstream industrial products from, from, from that process. You know, and a lot of African countries are realizing that this is what's going on. And uh, currently there is a movement to renegotiate a lot of the contracts, the mining contracts that, that countries have been embedded in. Guinea is doing that. The Congo is doing that. Um, and so, and especially Ghana right now has a new commi- renewed commitment to, to do that as well. So you're seeing this happen across the board in the continent. So I think it's just a matter of once that realization sets in, um, there will be more, more, you know, interesting developments. The second piece is simply a piece about elite coordination. So, uh, there's this book called gambling on development that I'm sure you've read where, Essentially, the idea is that like entrenched elites have no real interest to uh, develop their country, right? They, they, they have a lot of regulatory capture already in place. This benefits them and their interests and their interests of their friends. And in order to develop, what you're actually having to do is jeopardize a lot of this. It's kind of like the whole idea of Schumpeterian, you know, creative destruction, right? In order to create new value, you, sometimes you must destroy old value. Most, um, or at least I'll say a lot and some elites in Africa just aren't, do not vibe with that, uh, strictly speaking. And so it makes no sense for them. They can just enrich themselves off of just like brokering these resource extraction deals forever and ever. And so that's why the city itself is important because it's a way to segment the portion of the elite that is interested in this process of development and the risks that come with it, and then cooperate with them and coordinate with them to do the hard work of, okay, how do you use these existing, these, these existing assets, sorry, and then make them more valuable and productive over time. Um, and then of course, the, the, the third piece is just simply a question of uh, a technical question in terms of just capital. The capital environment in Africa is, is extremely, well, it's just not the best in the world. Let's just put it that way. Uh, people are not necessarily interested in investing in the region. There is a lot of volatility. For example, if you look at what's happening now in East Africa, even South Africa itself, I mean, great, you know, one of the most industrialized countries in the region, but is still inflicted by a lot of, you know, domestic violence. Um, one of the highest murder rates in the world, 
that's not necessarily a great environment for investors to put their money in or for or for people to consume and and people to go in and live and build lives there and so the capital environment and the the, the resources of capital are just not um available and are just not that attractive and so what you see is that like even though we have these ambitions of using the, the mine as an, as an asset to do downstream industrial activity and build institutions, there will be, we will have to build a pretty effective capital accumulation engine to be able to execute that at the scale we want over time. And that is not a guarantee. Uh, and that is one of the risks of the projects, but that is something that of course can be solved. Fantastic. So I want to flag four things that I think are particularly notable from both of those answers. First is you spoke about regional um, backing, regional winners that can then go global um, yeah. and incubating those, building the kind of you know cocoon for them to develop and then smack. Once they're kind of like well-developed enough, you can really kind of push them onto global markets. And yeah. one interesting firm that I came across that invests in that is actually a Peter Thiel-backed um, private equity firm in Korea, uh, South Korea, obviously. Um, it's called Crescendo Capital, and their entire uh, thesis is they look for highly specialized middle market industrialization-driven firms, so firms that are kind of working on some genre of industrial process, be it something in the middle of the supply chain for like nuclear energy or be it something electronics. Um, yeah. Normally kind of auteur family-led, and they say, hey, we want to take either a minority position or even a majority position. We know how to scale you guys and how to kind of polish you guys such that your market expansion is just like 10x. And the result is they bring that kind of distribution channel. They bring that kind of global market sophistication. And what South Korea does very well already is they bring that kind of engineering expertise and that technical expertise when it yeah. comes to that middle um, of the supply chain kind of product development. And I think it's it's interesting to think about, again, venture capital, super open, super sexy, software, beautiful kind of distribution economics. There's only so far that goes. In contrast here with a kind of, you know, roll your sleeves kind of PE model, you can find ways to uh, really build these core competencies that enable you to build these kind of export-led um, giants. So that's the first thing that kind of came to mind. Second thing that came to mind was you mentioned the difficulties and trials and tribulations, or perhaps what people see as a static playing field when it comes to the elites in a region. And I think one thing that you and I probably both agree on is the amount of experimentation that exists with regards to reconfiguring interests and redesigning incentives amongst elites is something that's very underinvested in because just the barriers to entry and the incentives are not there to do so. Um, I think there are high agency ways to kind of go about those things. I think you're kind of portraying one of them, but I think there's many, many more things that uh, other folks who are thinking about, okay, you know, the playing field here um, would benefit from seeing as a part of their kind of value stack if they want to engage in entrepreneurship in developing regions, which is really thinking yeah. about these uh, political dynamics creatively and also thinking about what does it mean to systematically um, uh, push them forward in the right way. Um, mm -hmm. Final thing I will say is you spoke about, you know, perhaps a lack of visionaries. And I came across this fantastic line the other day, um, which is speaking about kind of leaders who essentially this person says only dreams, leaders who only dream as far as their pockets. And I think mm. that was such an yeah. apt saying because I can see it, um, not just, you know, far away in terms of someone who's, you know, at the top of some sort of hierarchy, not taking things as far as they could in terms of really developing things. But you also see it amongst, you know, once, once peers who kind of stop their ambitions once they're kind of financially comfortable as well. And I think uh, it's yeah. an imperative to kind of fight in a sense. It's like that hunger, you know, like after Elon Musk, for example, you know, exits from PayPal, he says, hmm, 
I'm going to try and build a rocket company. Um, I'm not going to chill because I've, I've kind of, you know, I, I can do anything I want. And I think uh, yeah. developing that spiritual imperative is something that's key. I think you guys have the aesthetics and the kind of, you know, philosophy that kind of very much pushes that forward. Yeah, just to touch on that point, to, to really like get at, at why it's so pernicious in, 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 the, in the African context, or I guess maybe you could say maybe in like broadly speaking, developing world, global south context, frontier markets. Um, I'm sure that Elon didn't just get the 100 mil and was like, what can I do with it? Like there's a sense in which he probably already knew. And you, when you read the biography by Ashley Vance, he already kind of knew he would be involved in like getting to space in some way, building rockets in some way um early on and so when he had the capital then he was able to just be able to deploy it in what he wanted to do which was build this rocket company the the issue with a lot of in my experience encountering a lot of african elites is simply that the reason why the the, the vision is lacking is because there there is no real um long-term orientation on on really anything that's the problem like there's no there's no kind of like muscle for long-term planning even at the personal level. And so to be blunt, it's kind of like the immigrant syndrome where like a lot of Africans come to the US and they they exhort their kids to just basically become lawyers and doctors. Uh, there's an inability to dream and to, to have visions, to be open to visions uh, in the African context. I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I went to Zambia recently. I was having this debate with a, with a, with a fellow you know, African entrepreneur, just friendly debate. And I was, I was, you know, talking about this industrialization thesis and, and, and he was like, actually, what I think is going to work is export services uh, in the future uh, because, you know, and this is what Africa can be. They can just be the export service dominant market for the world. And, and I was like, okay, here's the problem with that. In a world in which everything is export services, you're exacerbating the parallel dynamics of services. So like, because of course, technology is a thing and technology is already, you know, we've seen ChatGPT infecting spaces like um, just content writing in general. And then of course, it's going to affect things like telemarketing, telecommunication, customer service industries, et cetera, et cetera. A a whole swath of service industries will be automated before we get to industrial automation. And, And I was like, who do you think is going to build the phones and, and the computers and the laptops and the devices that uh, all these Africans are going to be exporting their services on. And, like you know, There was no answer because essentially who's going to do that is going to capture most of the value because they're actually, um, and the answer of course is Apple today. In the future, it could be something new. And they, of course, are the ones building the infrastructure on top of which all that wealth is produced. And so... It's a, it's a problem of vision, not being able to see far enough into the the process to see that like the where the value is generated is who holds the cards, really the sovereignty for 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 where all these services can dance and like yeah that is a cultural problem and it's it's something that can be solved. You mentioned there's beyond building a city, there's other things you can do institutionally to solve that. New schools, maybe I don't know like new pieces of media that are directed towards creating that culture of dynamic vision and ambition in, in our people. But it's definitely something that like cannot just be solved with pure material interventions. It's, it's gotta be a bit more, um, touchy feely. <laughs> spiritual, spiritual, spiritual. Yeah. There you go. So I, I, I think, you know, one word I like to use like light that you had used there 
was muscle. You said, you know, muscle for long-term thinking. And yeah. it came back to uh, another reference that you made, which was perhaps a lack of stability in certain contexts that gets in the way of longer-term planning, but also of longer-term investment, et cetera. And, you know, part of the full-stack approach, one hopes, is thinking through what are the types of innovations, social and otherwise, that can ensure um, and enable broader stability in contexts that are otherwise volatile. And I think there's a yeah. risk and return premium that exists for participants that know how to go about doing that effectively. Um, I wonder if there are any thoughts you want to share on that front. In terms of specific interventions or just like... In terms of what does it mean to navigate uh, contexts that have perhaps increased volatility in contrast to quote the West? Um, and what does it mean to yeah. build the muscle to deal with that? Because I think there are certain firms that are very good at dealing with that. But again, their purpose and mandate is not, not development. long-term yeah. development. Yeah. Well, I mean... <sighs> The, the 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 unfortunate thing is is to me is that like the answer is simply it, it's kind of like um it's tautological it's like you need to already see the the people operating that way to then be able to get the the best way to kickstart this kind of process is through a, um, a mimetic drive it's like to kickstart a kind of mimetic process where you know you see someone do this you imitate you imitate them then in imitating them, you succeed. Someone else does the same thing to you. And in, in, in my experience, the reason, like just, to be, just to be personal for a second, like the reason why, the reason why I am, I'm not going to say I'm, I'm like Elon Musk, but I'm saying that like the reason why I'm actually, I understand and I see this disposition that he has and I try to adopt that in my own work is because he is the figure that inspired me to do that. Um, it wasn't some other African figure. It wasn't some other, African entrepreneur, like if I were to just look at that, I would just be a politician, right? And I would just simply sit on my connections and my wealth and just like, I'm good because that is the archetype that is available to me. And so if I hadn't looked outside of the continent, I would be still stuck in that, in that, in that mindset. And so in, in my work, in terms of like the people we've, we've in, the, the markets we've encountered, the people we've encountered, um, there, there really is no equivalent figure uh the the people that we work with um usually you can build common ground if they're if they've lived abroad and if they actually have operated in some western institutions because even if they don't adopt that disposition they've they have they've had contact with it either they critiqued it either they they have friends who are like that or they themselves aspire to be like that and so um, that's what's worked with us is like when we, for example, in Nigeria, um, the, 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 part, the partners we're working with, uh, the main guy, the main point of contact is someone that has, you know, operated across not just the West, but the Middle East. And so he's seen first firsthand, right? Like, I mean, talk about Dubai, like what happened over the last 40 years. Amazing, amazing example of this, like just completely ratcheted up the level of ambition for an entire uh, country city-state and um when you see that like you you just understand fundamentally how the world works it's like yes it's actually possible to do this stuff you can be muhammad alabar you know a, a, a favorite of ours and like just go ahead and build this giant building um 
just because you can. And and so that's the thing is like you need to have contacts with different cultures where these horizons are more open. And then we cooperate with people who already have that muscle so we don't have to always come in there and like interface brick walls to get what we need to get done. I think it's fantastic. I think you're know, speaking of the Middle East, one uh, entrepreneur that I think is very interesting beyond beyond uh, Mohammed Alibar is actually um, from Israel, this gentleman called Steph Wertheimer. And what's particularly interesting about him is he very much embodies yeah. the combination of industrialization at the kind of entrepreneurial level. So he was working on machine tooling. And um, what's very Amazing. interesting is, you know, it starts off as, um, and this is where vision matters so much, right? So he starts off um, with a small tooling shop. And this is the type of thing that you see in actually almost all kind of emerging economies. You see this in like you know, old Hong Kong, you see these kind of like huts where someone is very technical, but isn't as kind of polished and refined. It's like working on very intricate kind of like, you know, rewiring of kind of copper. And you see these videos, for example, um, of like, you know, perhaps the poorest areas in Ghana, right? You'll see um, videos of folks yeah. working on really technical um, yeah. electronics. And you think to yourself, like, like I, 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 for example, would like be totally impotent if I was in that position, right? And so he has a business like that, ends up industrializing slash scaling it to proper kind of hardcore machine, to, machine tooling at the kind of forefront. His firm gets bought up by uh, Berkshire Hathaway for like $1.5 to $2 billion. Um, but what's really interesting, actually, interesting. is um, alongside that, his other entrepreneurial project, which is just as valuable and just as generative, is the industrial zones that he built in Israel, which attracted hmm. and created industry clusters that were core to be it machine tooling, be it other parts of the supply chain that uh, Israel kind of thrives at right now. Um, I think obviously for them, they, they, they have this kind of existential imperative to, to, to coordinate in many respects, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is part of the problem you guys are trying to solve here. But he's very much an interesting archetype, which again, it, it, it's strange because people think the aesthetic of entrepreneurship is Zuck in flip-flops and a... You know, <laughs> in, in, in flip-flops and a t-shirt yeah and, in your um, dorm room yeah you can change the world from your dorm room it's an attractive idea i get it people want like like you said naval with the leverage thing they want to be able to just have this extreme leverage and we are trending towards that world don't get me wrong you know like yeah the, the technical infrastructure that exists now one person can do a lot but until we get to a point in like Blade Runner where you have an individual like Neander Wallace running a trillion dollar company building actual robots to, well, not robots, you know, they call them replicants, whatever, robots to basically go ahead and colonize the, uh, you know, nine planets, then I'll be skeptical of that thesis because the kind of industrial automation you need to even get there is significant. And that's going to require millions of hands, millions of people, contrary to the, to the actual uh, prognosis. Definitely. I think there's also something, you know, spiritually important about not trying to engage in like solipsistic entrepreneurship either. Um, <laughs> That's the, a good the, term, yeah. The, 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 the function of entrepreneurship is not just, I mean, obviously you want to kind of create value for yourself and for your shareholders, but also um, the companies that, you know, matter in an area are the ones that are kind of like shaping the area in terms of the people that work there, in terms of the talent, in terms of the, you know, broader landscape of who is kind of a part of that kind of ecosystem. Precisely, think, yeah. Uh, you know, the platonic ideal, as mentioned, of tiny team, quick exit, you know, I'm chilling in my flip-flops is actually... Um, it's quite mercenary. <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, I wouldn't even use a mercenary, I'd say it's pathetic, but that's um, a different... Uh, <laughs> that's something you kind of talk about my personal gripes and you're kind of bringing out a bit of personality in me as opposed to my usual, uh, you know, pure question-asking self. Fair um, enough. So 
I'm wondering if you are willing, I would love to hear about, you're, you're focusing on Nigeria right now. Um, I know you're incredibly well read as it relates to the uh, history of different countries on the continent. And I'm curious if you could share maybe one, share the story of a country that you are, for lack of a better word, bullish on and one that you are bearish on in terms of what you think is kind of going on in those countries um, right now. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give a, a um, I'll give three answers. I'll give one that's semi-bullish. I'll give one that's very bullish and one that's extremely bearish. Okay. Um, so the, the semi-bullish one, I think this is a contrarian answer. That's why I'm giving that one first. Is actually is actually Guinea. Um, hmm. Guinea <laughs> Guinea is a uh, is it right sorry, now, equatorial Guinea? No, just just straight up Guinea Conakry is the is the capital of that country. Um, mm-hmm. Right right neighboring Mali, I believe. Okay. And Guinea is 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 a very contrarian answer. Of course, people will will come at me and laugh at me after this interview is live. But hear me out. So right now they're being led by a military dictatorship of course, already disqualified, right? But in terms of the the, the populate, like, again, what I look for in, to answer this question is like the same drivers that you, that are seen at a macro level on the continent. It's like this the rapid urbanization, um, this this young and, and bustling population, but also any kind of assets that can be leveraged to enter into these interesting downstream industrial processes, right? And so Guinea has... That in abundance in 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 the form of um, um, bauxite and uh, and and bauxite like the 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 level of bauxite reserves that they have is is just ridiculous and like they've just recently started even with this military dictatorship they've understood that this is something that an asset they could leverage to to and, and bauxite by the way is is used to create aluminum in which can be used to create very um, uh, interesting machine tooling products and like more sophisticated industrial products, et cetera, et cetera. And so they, they're seeing this now. And like, even the dictator is seeing that like, yeah, this is something we can leverage to, to, to build domestic uh, processing, refining champions. And then in the future, leverage that to do something else. So if I were a contrarian, I think if you have the, the right kind of elite revolution and circulation in the country, you can really redirect all of Guinea's seemingly, um, you know, tragic assets into something very interesting and powerful. Of course, you won't get to the level of like a Nigeria, but like you can get to a very thriving middle-income country by like 2050, right? Which is which is something that, not and not middle-income in the sense of Botswana, you know, like actual industrial middle-income country. So, and uh, the the more bear the more bullish one is of course. Um, Nigeria, but that's an obvious answer, so I won't say that. Um, that is also contrarian, by the way. Everyone yeah. thinks everyone thinks Nigeria is uh, is not going to be a state by the end by the end of the of the century. Having but, looked at the um, direction of the Naira, um, most definitely <laughs> contrarian. But I digress. But 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 of course that's 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 kind of the point I'm making because my answer for the most bearish is also Nigeria. That's that's what I'm trying to say. So, I, I'm here's why I'm bearish on Nigeria. It's because the Islamic portion of the country is increasingly the most dominant. They are um, culturally almost antithetical to the to the other 
you know, ethnic portions of the country, they can't really work together. And of course, there's the the over reliance on oil and this this commodity commodity engine as an economic base. And so all of these factors considered, and of course, the, the the currency is is going to shit. And they their central bank is literally a a um is literally fighting its own people in terms of like being able to get them to have like basic reserves to do basic banking and stuff like that. So so those are the reasons why I'd be bearish on Nigeria. But again, the reason why I'm bullish is because there is no country in which you see the kind of macro trends sweeping Africa that can be leveraged into anything interesting. What what you what you'll see in my in my in my bullish analysis is simply that like I have a fundamental belief in will and in choice. Again, with the whole point about elite coordination, gambling, choosing, committing to development, right? That is literally the only thing that needs to happen to get Nigeria to a baseline level of wealth. I mean, it's already about a $500 billion GDP economy, which is not a lot, but of course, it's something on the African continent. And if and the human capital is simply undeniable. The all of all of the the most performant African um, exports in other countries are almost always Nigerian. Um, if you look at in Africa, if you have like, I mean, Giannis Antetokounmpo, of course, but not just in that, in tech and finance, they're almost always Nigerian. Nigeria just has like a plethora of human capital. And that human talent is currently enriching foreign countries. But again, if you're able to through the cities that are literally like this, these pockets of possibility, you can create a narrative in which you attract the talent back to the country and then over time engage with the North, engage with other ethnicities, get them involved in the gamble to develop and create this kind of broader coalition. Then you can definitely make a case for Nigeria being, quite frankly, like Africa's first great superpower. And, um, it's contingent on a lot of work, but it's it's frankly not impossible. I mean, if Singapore could do it, Singapore had a very similar situation in terms of like the ethnic strife with Malaysia um, and even other other races uh, in the country before they became this paradise of multicultural development. They had the same issues. Lee Kuan Yew was there, his party was there. They were able to solve that, and they got it done. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a firm believer in the great man theory of history. I mean, you know that. And um, all Nigeria needs is about ten great men. <laughs> well, I, I love that ending. I I I completely agree. I think um, this is where the lens and the story and the mindset that one has when looking at kind of you know frontier developing and emerging markets is so uh, important. And it's very important to note which direction your worldview is being influenced in and how that shapes your decisions and perception. And now I'm being obtuse there. What I specifically mean here is uh, the consensus narrative around a lot of risk on regions is um, I'm waiting for an external catalyst to change. Precisely. Um, yeah. And it's also what are the kind of current growth rates? And it's very much that of kind of like a ride along investor or a sidecar investor. And I think it's indexing it, as a mentality. Exactly. It's indexing yeah. as a mentality. And I think um, I understand like cognitively where that comes from, understand risk-wise risk where that comes from. Um, it's important that in order to 
you, know, you, you want to be able to tap into that pool of capital. Those people are not the ones who are going to shape the environment. But when you look at an investing environment, that is something that you can shape over time as you build institutional capacity to do so, right? And I think uh, the role of entrepreneurs like yourself is fundamentally to roll your sleeves up and to get rid of those blockers that make things uninvestable. And I think um, knowing how to do that pragmatically in a real politic manner um, is very important. And also see it's a skill set which is, again, once again, less like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Larry Page, but is far more like maybe Bismarck. And precisely, more like a, you know, a dining group's getting whipped left, right, and center <laughs> right now. But again, it's 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 slightly closer to that. Um, yeah, just quickly on that, I just wanted to say, and that's why I always recommend, like when I when I speak to fellow African founders, like a lot of people just ask me for like business books and shit. Like on, honestly, that stuff is extremely commoditized. You can just find anything you need about business stuff online. I mean, just read a few people, you know, Peter Thiel, Paul Graham, or like whatever, maybe some more MBA stuff. Uh, if you are going to operate in frontier markets, you need to have a historical perspective because what you're doing is much more akin to state to nation building than it is company building mm-hmm. at, at this stage anyway. And, and I read this book, The Tycoons um, by, uh, by Morris, Charles Morris. Yes. And um, just seeing how JP Morgan basically was a central bank unto himself for in the 19th century is is really the archetype here like he, he was able to build now his company is is known as just a banking firm at the time he was literally the bridge between two worlds in terms of the uk capital markets bringing that capital into the us to develop the industrial uh, conglomerates of that country without jp morgan there is no uh, you know there is no railroad american railroad in, in industry there is no shipping industry there is none of that infrastructure they use to basically win world war 2 and build a world empire so yeah, it's much more necessary to read history and uh, understand these kinds of like figures than it is to know about like I don't know freaking yeah the the tenth SaaS startup founder and what he's doing yeah yeah I I, I completely agree um, on that uh, are there any final notes you'd like to share uh, with listeners Alpha anything that you uh, would like to ask or inspire them with beyond that you know reading recommendation. Hmm. Um, I will say that knowing uh, how not to die is probably the most important skill, not to die figuratively in this space. Uh, if you're going to be involved in frontier markets, you're going to be illiquid for quite a while and <laughs> you're going to be... Um, you're just going to be uh, in the red, seemingly, for, 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 for a long time. And so having the infrastructure around you, whether it be friends or just being able to have the kind of like mental capacity to sustain your level of determination and commitment for years on end without seeing any kind of like, you know, major wins is, is the key skill for anyone who's going to be in a space. If you're investing, probably even more so because... Um, Investors usually beyond the, the raw IQ, what what kills you is your inability to to manage your psychological um, capacity, you know. And so, if you're gonna be an investor, even more so, and if you're gonna be an entrepreneur, um, just just never give up. Just don't don't give up. And it's cliche, 
but it's cliche because it's real. Fantastic, fantastic. I think uh, I'll I'll leave us with one anecdote, which is you mentioned Dubai before, and yeah. um, we're a big fan of some of the current entrepreneurs that have like kind of pushed development forward there. But one of my favorite entrepreneurs, who is very much the embodiment of a frontier market entrepreneur, is the fellow who. Um, Actually, sorry, this is not in Dubai. This is in Qatar. <laughs> nonetheless, nonetheless, I, I I will tell the anecdote anyways, yeah. which is um, Adolf Lunden. Um, Adolf Lunden. Swedish uh, family. Um, his brother was mm. part of the kind of your Swedish kind of, you know, CIA, et cetera, kind of headed it up. But the interesting thing here is almost serendipitously and by chance, he bumps into someone who had been working uh on geology projects for the government at the time in the 1970s. And um, there are a couple of projects that have been stalled, external financing had pulled out. And really, uh, you know, you looked at Qatar at the time, people were like, this is, you know, even though they have a bit of oil, they're really a fishing village. There's nothing interesting here. And um, yeah. this is where variant perception matters so much. And in this context, he goes there and he's very much willing to be risk on. He looks at the risks and understands kind of like what's going on there, builds a relationship, with uh the emir and like one interesting thing is you know the the, the emir is kind of soliciting him for a bit of a um, lubrication a bribe so to speak and um they have to uh um, flip a coin <laughs> they have to they have to flip a coin he, he says no not flip a coin he says uh, if it rains tomorrow um i will keep my million dollars if it's sunny tomorrow i will give you a million dollars obviously this is qatar qatar right yeah, it never rains um the point there being he gets the license after that and this is actually um the biggest natural gas field, not only in Qatar, but in the world that they end up finding and they end up defining wow. and end up extracting from and selling onwards. And what's interesting is, you know, 40 years later, uh, you go to Qatar and they spent $200 billion on a world cup. Um, the the, the yeah. point there being, you know, they've gone to this, from being stuck to conspicuous production and consumption at the same time. Um, things can flip like that for a region. It takes 40 years to kind of build it up. But yeah, being willing to entertain creative ideas as it relates to what a region can be and then willing to get your hands dirty, I think, is very much at the frontier of of risk and reward. And it's something that I think many archetypes, you know, listeners here um, will find solace in in going on that journey. And just I just really want to say one more thing, Krisha. I really appreciate you for doing this. I mean, this itself is an example of frontier um, thinking because no one else is is doing what you're doing right now and like the, the i just think the amount of knowledge and informational capital and talent you'll be able to aggregate from this will be amazing 40 years from now so really really appreciate you and you know good luck keep going deeply appreciate it it's a 50 year 100 year millennium <laughs> yeah kind of journey but yeah thank you so much uh let's end of course here.